You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 6, The King's Army. Thanks for joining me. Our subject today is warfare and military life in 18th century Europe. The French Revolution would transform the art of war and the relationship between nations and their soldiers forever. But it was in these armies before that transformation that Napoleon and all the other great commanders of this era learned their trade. I know there's some listener interest in the average person's experience of this era, particularly in the lives of common soldiers. As luck would have it, there's an excellent memoir of this period written by a reasonably average guy that includes a lot of great information about military life. His name was Ulrich Breaker. He was Swiss, but served in the Prussian army during the Seven Years' War. His memoir is called The Life Story and Real Adventures of the Poor Man of Toggenburg. Breaker came from humble origins and had little formal education, but he was a talented, funny writer with a fantastic eye for detail. I'll be using him as an example as we go along, weaving in some of his observations and experiences to illustrate some of the general concepts we'll be talking about. The 18th century was a transitional period in the history of warfare. In earlier eras, the battlefield was ruled by elite, heavily armored units who fought up close, hand-to-hand. Technological and production improvements in the 17th century made firearms and artillery more accurate, more reliable, lighter, and cheaper. This ushered in a new era in the history of warfare, an era dominated by the firepower of massed formations of infantry armed with muskets. This type of warfare was a far cry from that of armored medieval knights or the colorful mercenary troops of the Renaissance. But among the ruling elite, there were a lot of romantic notions about war that harkened back to earlier eras. Officers tended to see themselves as gentlemen first and foremost, and war as honorable, something that could be pursued with dignity and chivalry, even with a degree of restraint. Officers may have perceived some sense of collegial fair play among each other, but this attitude was not extended to the men. Discipline in 18th century armies was mercilessly brutal. Corporal punishment was widespread, ordeals like flogging with a cat of nine tails, being forced to stand barefoot on a narrow wooden tent peg for hours at a time, or running the gauntlet, in which a unit was formed into two lines and the condemned man was made to walk between them with every soldier in the regiment required to strike him with a stick or a switch. Cruelty could come from your own comrades as well, in the form of hazing rituals and unofficial courts of honor that punished breaches of the unspoken rules of barracks life. And this brutal treatment wasn't just reserved for men convicted of crimes. Physical violence and verbal abuse were key components of training and even of everyday life. Prevailing wisdom was that a climate of fear was necessary to maintain order in camp and discipline on the battlefield. Frederick the Great famously said that he wanted his men to be more afraid of their officers than of the enemy. The Prussian army was generally considered the harshest in Europe. Here's how Ulrich Breker described the experience of Prussian discipline. We had to watch as they were made to run the gauntlet eight times up and down the long avenue of 200 men until they fell down breathless and on the next day had to do it again. The clothes were torn from their mangled backs, and blows began afresh until clots of blood hung down over their breeches. Besides this, the way things went on the drill ground gave us cause for similar observations. 
There, too, we had no end of cursing and blows from minor nobles who liked to wield the whip, and likewise no end of lamentations from their victims. We ourselves, indeed, were always among the first in our places and exerted ourselves bravely, but it grieved us to the heart nonetheless to see others so unmercifully mishandled for every trifle, and to picture ourselves so shamefully mistreated year upon year, standing often for five hours at a time, laced up into our uniforms as tight as a nut, marching up and down poker stiff, and continually practicing the arms drill as quick as lightning, and all this at the behest of an officer standing before us with a furious face and a cane at the ready, and every moment threatening to cut us down like cabbage stumps. Under this treatment, even the strongest nerved fellows among us grew weak, and the meekest raged with anger. End quote. This was a horrible way to live, but there was a grim logic to this approach. In 18th century warfare, victory often went to the most disciplined troops, the army whose soldiers were best able to ignore their basic human impulses for self-preservation and obey orders like automatons. Winning battles meant continuing to march when you were too tired to march. It meant staying in formation at all costs, calmly closing ranks as your comrades fell around you, moving only in steady lockstep, only firing when ordered, and most importantly of all, it meant never giving in to the basic human instinct to turn tail and run away when faced with danger. If an infantry unit panicked and scattered, they were inviting the enemy to charge in and finish them all off. This was the ideal target for cavalry. Keep your head, stay together, and you might stay alive. Lose your nerve, the last thing you ever hear will likely be hoofbeats rapidly approaching from behind. In time, states would learn to train and motivate men to fight this way of their own free will. But for most of the 18th century, the method was to psychologically break recruits and terrorize them into blind obedience. And it worked. Here's how Henry Lloyd, an Englishman who fought for Austria against Frederick the Great, described the Prussian army, quote, A vast and regular machine. Their victories must be ascribed to this chiefly, for all the genius of the leader can do nothing without it, and almost everything with it, end quote. Amazingly, there were men who actually volunteered for this. As we've discussed in previous episodes, there was intense poverty in 18th century Europe. The military was seen as a last resort, but many were forced to take it. Others sought adventure or glory. Petty criminals were often given the choice of serving in the military or serving a prison sentence. The hard-partying, hard-drinking aspects of military culture and the daily ration of liquor or beer issued by most armies attracted destitute alcoholics. Recruiting officers also routinely used deception and what we today would probably classify as kidnapping, particularly in wartime when manpower reserves were stretched. That's how Ulrich Breaker ended up in Frederick the Great's army. He took a job as a servant for a rich foreigner named Marconi and faithfully followed his new master right to a Prussian army post where he was inducted into the military. Marconi was a recruiting officer, paid a bounty for every young man he brought in. Here's how Breaker described the scene when he arrived at the base. Quote, Over his arm, the sergeant major carried a soldier's uniform, which he spread out on the table and, laying a coin beside it, said, That's for you, my son. I'll bring you your bread ration directly. What, for me, I rejoined? What for? Who sent it? Why, your uniform and your pay, boy. That's a foolish question for a recruit. What? How? A recruit? I replied. God forbid. I never thought of any such thing. No, not in all my life. I am Marconi's servant, 
That's what I was hired for, nothing else. And no one need tell me otherwise. The sergeant. And I tell you, fellow, that you are a soldier. I'll vouch for that, and there's no more to be said. End quote. It will probably not shock you to hear that desertion was rampant. Conditions were brutal, pay was bad, and many soldiers had no desire to join up in the first place. No one in the 18th century carried identification. It was tantalizingly simple to just slip away. In the British Army, for example, 23% of the men recruited between 1774 and 1780 deserted before the end of their term of service, nearly one in four. Frederick the Great issued a document called the King's Military Instructions. These were a short list of standing orders, procedures and practices he wanted every Prussian army to follow. The very first order in that document is about preventing desertion, which I think goes to show how seriously he took this problem. In Frederick's own words, through desertion, quote, the army becomes weakened at the very period when its completeness is most essentially necessary. Unless the greatest attention is paid to circumstance, you will lose the best of your forces and never be able to recover yourself. End quote. To prevent desertion, Frederick ordered, among other things, that armies not camp near woods, avoid marching at night, call roll several times a day, and send out cavalry patrols and establish cordons of light infantry to hunt down and capture deserters. He tells officers not to allow their men to, quote, wander about without supervision even to forage for fresh water. And the men were to be kept busy. Quoting Frederick again, An army is composed for the most part of idle and inactive men, and unless the general has a constant eye upon them and obliges them to do their duty, this artificial machine will very soon fall to pieces, and nothing but the bare idea of a disciplined army will remain. End quote. This almost sounds more like life on a prison chain gang than soldiering. Imagine if tomorrow morning you woke up and there were media reports of troops in your country's military being treated like 18th century soldiers. Think of the public reaction. At the very least, some politicians and generals would probably lose their jobs. Here in the U.S., I'd be worried someone might get killed over it. But in the 18th century, people didn't really care. And this wasn't some secret. The brutality of military life is depicted pretty explicitly in Voltaire's Candide, for example and that was the most popular book of the century. Clearly, cultural attitudes towards the military were very different in the 1700s. This was not an era in which supporting the troops was considered a civic virtue. Soldiers were a scorned class of outcasts. Generally, common people feared and distrusted them, and the elite despised them as degenerates and criminals. This attitude began to change during and after the French Revolution, but as late as 1813, the Duke of Wellington famously called his own men the scum of the earth. When Ulrich Breaker was a new recruit, here's how a veteran soldier explained their lot. Quote, Alas we, poor dogs, that have been cast away or sold, fit only to be despised in time of peace, and in war to be stabbed or shot. End quote. In pre-revolutionary Paris, there were signs in public parks reading, no soldiers, no prostitutes. I think that shows you pretty clearly where soldiers ranked in the 18th century European social strata. Of course, little of this bad reputation rubbed off on the officers. The officer corps in most of Europe was still very much the preserve of the nobility. Leading men into battle was seen as an honorable occupation, even though actually being one of those men was not. 
strange state of affairs, but then again, there are some glaring contradictions in the way almost every society views war. The aristocratic pretensions of the officer class sometimes bordered on the absurd. At the Battle of Fontenoy in 1745, the first regiment of foot guards, the most elite unit in the British army, found themselves face to face with the Garde Française, the most elite unit in the French army. As the two units faced each other in line formation, officers from each side stepped forward, bowed, and doffed their caps to each other. After a few flowery, aristocratic insults, an English officer invited the French to fire first, calling out, Gentlemen of the French guards, fire! His French counterpart demurred, answering, Gentlemen, we never fire first. Fire yourselves. This strange little standoff ultimately ended with the French firing first. The English foot guards got the better of that particular exchange, but the British army lost the battle, so not sure what lesson we can take from that result. The incident passed into history as an example of old-fashioned chivalry, but the side that fired first was usually at a disadvantage, so this is more a case of high-class trash talk than gentlemanly refinement. Still, it's an odd way to conduct yourself given the circumstances. And there is something about the event that feels ritualistic and archaic, out of place in the so-called Age of Reason. Blue blood and wealth were the most important factors in achieving high military rank, just as they had been for over a thousand years of European history. But that old way of doing things was under pressure in these changing times. After all, this was the Age of the Enlightenment. Many educated people worshipped rationality and empiricism, and it was getting hard to defend this system on rational grounds. War was becoming more like a science. An officer needed a good understanding of geometry to effectively command artillery, and engineering to build and maintain fortifications. Armies were getting bigger, and their supply needs were getting more complex. A good general needed a solid understanding of logistics as least as much as he needed the intangible chivalric qualities that supposedly came from good breeding. To meet these challenges, many armies introduced merit-based promotion in branches of service that required a lot of technical knowledge, like the artillery or the engineering corps, and even allowed commoners to become officers in these branches. Governments opened military academies, where cadets would learn about tactics and strategy as academic disciplines, rather than going to war as boys and learning how to be an officer from their elders, as many had in earlier generations. Still, there was only so far a man could climb without money, the right last name, and good connections. A great example of this is the career of a French officer named Lazare Carnot. Carnot was one of the great military geniuses of this era, and would go on to play a huge role in the revolution. Before 1789, he was already well known within the military as a reformer, with big ideas about the future of the French army. He also had a reputation in intellectual circles for his contributions to the field of science, mathematics, and engineering, which he did as a hobby in his spare time. He was widely considered to be the greatest mind in the French army, and for good reason, but he was also a commoner. Carnot was an engineer, and commoners were allowed to serve as officers in that branch of the French military, but not to rise above the relatively junior rank of captain. He was in his late thirties when the revolution broke out, still only a captain after almost two decades of service. Aristocratic officers would have considered it an embarrassment to have stayed in the army that long without achieving a higher rank, but that was the best Carnot could hope for under the old system, despite being known as one of France's most brilliant officers. So when the time came, Captain Carnot supported the revolution. 
put in his situation, wouldn't you? The old army was not interested in putting the talents of someone like him to good use. Maybe it never would be. But he had a contribution to make. The revolution offered him a chance to make it. So Captain Carnot took his chance and tried to make a mark on history instead of remaining in obscurity. So that's what an 18th century army looked like. Lots of sullen, unwilling soldiers being mistreated by often unqualified officers. Not a pretty picture. But how did they actually perform? Battles of the 18th century were very small compared to what would come after the revolution. For instance, the biggest battle of the Seven Years' War included about 80,000 men total on both sides. Over half a million men participated in Napoleon's biggest battle. There are a couple reasons for this. First, pre-revolutionary European states were just not as effective at recruiting and training. Second, even if they had managed to somehow concentrate that many men for a single battle, their logistics systems would have been overwhelmed trying to keep such a small area supplied with enough food and equipment for hundreds of thousands. But most importantly, that's just not the way pre-revolutionary powers fought wars. When we think of great powers fighting each other, we tend to imagine a war effort like World War I or World War II, conflicts in which entire populations were mobilized and governments requisitioned every necessary resource to fight for national survival. That type of war is called total war, and it did not yet exist in the 18th century. Scholars classify the conflicts of this era as limited wars. There was no mass mobilization, not for military service, not for war production. Governments took out loans and raised taxes for military spending, but they didn't resort to anything truly drastic, like seizing emergency control over parts of the economy. The Seven Years' War was a massive global conflict involving almost every major European country waged on five continents. But even at its height, life didn't change very much for most Europeans. Unless someone close to them was in the military, or they had the misfortune of living in the path of one of the armies, many average people were probably only dimly aware there was a war going on at all. 18th century states didn't really have the capabilities or know-how to wage total war, but even if they had, why would they? As you'll recall from earlier episodes, for the great powers of this era, losing a war usually just meant giving up a few border provinces or colonies at the treaty negotiations. Why bankrupt the government, ruin the economy, and kill off a generation of young men over something so trivial? After all, there'll probably be another war in a couple of years. You can always win it back. Armies were expensive. They cost money to feed and equip, of course. And from the state's perspective, every veteran soldier had a great deal of time and money invested in him. Turning a raw recruit into a model soldier was a slow process. Sure, they could march and fire a musket after only a few months' training, but it took years of accrued experience, drill, and, let's be honest here, indoctrination for that man to truly fight and march like a veteran. 18th century commanders viewed experienced men as precious, finite resources. They considered it foolish to risk too many of them on the outcome of a single battle. Fighting in too many large, costly engagements was seen as a mark of incompetence in a general. Even if he usually won, it was reckless. Command of an army was a solemn, sacred charge, and the commander's first duty was to preserve it. So wars were fought cautiously, deliberately, like a chess match between two conservative players. 
It was quite common for opposing armies to maneuver around each other for months without fighting a major engagement. Sometimes an entire campaign season would come and go without a big battle. Both armies would leave their winter quarters, march around the theater of war for eight or nine months, raiding, fighting in small skirmishes, then march back to their winter quarters with nothing resolved. There was another reason wars were fought at this slow pace. Maybe an obvious one. Armies of this era couldn't move very quickly. 15 miles per day was a remarkably fast pace of march for this era. Most armies did closer to 10. That's between 24 and 16 kilometers a day for the metric-minded. And that was under ideal conditions. Over rough terrain or with some unforeseen delay, it could be much less. To put in perspective just how slow that is, it takes a person walking at an average pace a little under 5 hours to walk 15 miles. So what slowed these guys down? For one thing, think back to Frederick the Great's instructions to his generals to prevent desertion. No shortcuts through the woods. No pushing a few extra hours into the night to make up for lost time. No complicated maneuvers that might split the army up and prevent them from forming that barrier of light infantry cordons and cavalry patrols. Soldiers were not allowed to leave the march column for any reason without the direct supervision of an officer. This really slowed down foraging, the process by which parties of soldiers fan out across the countryside to buy or requisition food from local civilians. Since they couldn't reliably supply themselves this way, 18th century armies had to travel with huge, slow-moving supply trains. Armies on the march were organized, above all, to stop the soldiers from fleeing, not to maximize speed. And the attitude of the soldiers must have made a difference in the speed of the army. We know many of them didn't want to be there in the first place. A huge proportion of soldiers probably loathed their officers and didn't even really care who won the war they were fighting in. Fear and force can push people to the point of exhaustion, but I think you need some level of sincere belief to inspire them to push past that point. With all of that said, on occasion, these lumbering, unhappy masses of petty criminals and kidnapping victims did bump into each other and fight a battle. Battles tended to start with small skirmishes between cavalry and scouts, as each army attempted to do reconnaissance and disrupt the enemy as they deployed their main force. Once battles started in earnest, they usually look like the ones you see in movies. Thin lines of infantry marching towards one another and getting shockingly close before the first shot was fired. Firearms technology had improved by leaps and bounds, but it was still comically bad by modern standards. Americans might know the famous command from the Battle of Bunker Hill during the American War of Independence. Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Well, that actually wasn't that unusual. Soldiers generally weren't ordered to fire on the enemy until they were closer than 50 yards, or about 45 meters, maximum. Even at close range, by some estimates, less than 1% of rounds fired actually struck an enemy soldier. The reloading process was cumbersome and complicated. Under combat conditions, the average soldier could only fire his weapon two or three times a minute. To our eyes, soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder in those 18th century line formations look like sitting ducks, maybe even a little ridiculous. But with such inaccurate, cumbersome weapons, the only way to guarantee hitting anything was to get as many men as possible firing at the same target. These tight formations also allowed them to cluster together quickly in the event of a cavalry charge. It was very easy for troopers on horseback to ride down and kill a single infantry soldier, 
much more difficult to charge through a row of raised bayonets. Soldiers would fire their muskets as a group in unison. These bursts of firepower are called volleys. This maximized the psychological impact on the enemy and allowed officers to control the timing and pacing. With the slow rate of fire, officers would often form their lines two or three men deep, and each layer of the line, so to speak, would take turns firing, thus reducing the time between volleys. A man armed with a musket was very vulnerable while reloading. It was a complicated multi-step process that required a lot of his attention. The period of lull between firing a volley and having the next shot ready was dangerous. Two opposing units might fire a few volleys back and forth at each other, or they might hammer away for quite some time. But almost inevitably, eventually, one side would sense a moment of weakness in the other, or gain some temporary advantage, and seize the opportunity by charging with bayonets. Sometimes this would result in hand-to-hand combat, but quite often soldiers on the receiving end of a bayonet charge would simply turn tail and run. Like I said, commanders usually didn't order a charge unless the enemy was already wavering or weakened, and facing your enemy up close with a bayonet is a lot more psychologically difficult than firing at him from a distance. The line formations popular during this period were designed to maximize firepower. They weren't very effective for fast assaults with hand-to-hand weapons. Shock tactics, as military theorists call them. That's why infantry usually only charged at an enemy who was already near the breaking point. This was a style of warfare that favored the defensive and firepower rather than the offensive and shock tactics. As I mentioned at the beginning, artillery was improving during this period as well. Cannons were becoming more accurate, and more importantly, more mobile. But as often happens in the history of warfare, tactics hadn't quite caught up with technology. You might compare the use of artillery in this period to the use of tanks and airplanes in the First World War. They certainly played a role, but military commanders were still learning their capabilities, and it wouldn't be until decades later that they'd be used to their full potential. By the late 18th century, it was feasible to move artillery around the battlefield as needed, but few commanders took full advantage of this advance. Oftentimes, cannons would simply be scattered around the field before a battle on any patches of high ground that could be found, and commanders would just hope for the best. Cavalry was declining in importance. A man on a horse is a pretty big target, even for a poorly trained infantryman with an inaccurate 18th century musket, and it was almost impossible for cavalry to break through tight formations of bayonet-armed infantry, as long as the infantrymen kept their nerve. There were still grand cavalry charges, just as there would be for another century of European history, but they were more dangerous and less effective than in previous eras. But the cavalry played many other roles. They were scouts and screens, gathering intelligence on the opposing army and preventing enemy horsemen from doing the same. They raided supplies and disrupted communications. In big battles, the cavalry's speed made them ideal for harassing the enemy rear and flanks and pursuing defeated enemy units. And they could still be devastating against infantry caught out of formation or unaware. So that's the theory behind these 18th century battles. But the experience was something else entirely. The dominant sensation for most participants was probably confusion. Gunpowder of this era was fouler, more malignant stuff than the gunpowder some of you might be familiar with today. It produced much more smoke, and that smoke was thicker, darker, and physically stung the eyes. 
This was even worse for the common infantryman. Firing a musket involved setting off a tiny gunpowder charge just below the shooter's cheek, potentially sending a little plume of noxious smoke right into his eye. Firing a lot of rounds in quick succession would leave the side of the face scorched like a bad sunburn. With tens of thousands of muskets and dozens of cannon all firing at the same time, for hours on end, battlefields quickly became covered in a thick, stinging haze of gunpowder smoke. Many accounts of battles from this period mention the lack of visibility. And remember, the most important thing for an infantryman was to stay with the unit, stay in formation. That's the biggest practical reason for all the colorful flags and uniforms of this era. It's easier for the unit to stick together if they can all recognize each other instantly through the fog of war. It would have been almost as hard to hear as it was to see. Muskets were incredibly loud. Most fired around less than half the size of a modern military rifle, but their design was much less efficient, and it took a lot of that low-quality gunpowder to propel the shot with enough force to do any damage. The sound of one musket going off might be enough to make your ears ring if you're close enough. And remember, most of the shooting in these battles was done in volleys, with as many as several hundred men all clustered together firing at once. It got loud. On top of that, there would have been the noise from artillery, officers shouting commands, and of course, the cries of the wounded. With his senses under assault, the average participant in an 18th century battle often had little idea what was going on more than a few feet away. Maybe the relentless drill and discipline makes a little more sense in this context. A disoriented, frightened soldier could rely on his training. He could forget about trying to interpret the confusing, hellish world around him and concentrate on obeying his superiors, on going through those same familiar motions he'd practiced a thousand times on the parade ground. Our buddy Ulrich Breaker fought in only one battle, the Battle of Lobositz. This was the first major engagement of the Seven Years' War. Not a particularly important one, but representative enough for our purposes. Here's some of Breaker's description. At six o'clock, the artillery fire was already thundering from our front line, as well as from the Imperial batteries, so fiercely that the humming cannonballs sped as far as our regiment, which was in the second line. Until then, I had always hoped to steal away before a battle. Now I saw no way of escape before me nor behind, neither to the left nor to the right, and meanwhile we continued to advance. Now my heart sank into my boots. I would have liked to creep into the belly of the earth. And a similar fear, indeed a deathly pallor, was soon to be seen on every face, even of those who had so far feigned courage. The brandy flasks that every soldier carried flew empty through the air amid the cannonballs, for most men drank their little store to the last drop, to the tune of Courage Today and Maybe No Need of a Dram Tomorrow. We remained under the enemy's cannon fire until near eleven o'clock. I was already feeling less afraid than at the beginning though volleys were carrying men away from near me on both sides, and the field was already strewn with dead and wounded. I'll skip a little exposition here. Basically, Breaker is part of a contingent that gets moved to face a threat on another part of the battlefield. He uses the word pondur in the next passage. That was a type of light infantry soldier in the Austrian military. Just like the U.S. Army traditionally calls its light infantry rangers, the Austrians called some of theirs pondurs. Anyway, he writes, as soon as our vanguard had reached the summit, a terrible hail of musket fire burst out, and now we could see where the trap was laid in our path. 
Several thousand Imperial Pondors had been moved up on the other side of the hill, expressly to attack our army in the rear. Only a few minutes more, and they would have taken the heights, and we could have gotten the worst of it. An indescribable slaughter took place before we could drive the Pondors out from among the trees. Our advance troops suffered severely, but the rear ranks pressed after them at breakneck speed, until at last we had all reached the heights. There we had to go stumbling over heaps of dead and wounded. Our native Prussians sprang upon the Pondors like furies. I too was quite beside myself with heat and excitement, and conscious of no fear or repugnance, I loosed off nearly all of my sixty cartridges without stopping, until my musket became almost red-hot and I had to carry it by the sling. Yet, I do not believe that I heard a living thing. It all went into thin air. Now on the plain, the battle was begun anew, but who could fittingly describe such a scene? The smoke and steam now issuing forth from Lebosits, the crackling and thundering, as if heaven and earth were about to dissolve, while the senses were confused by the unceasing roll of hundreds of drums, by the sounds of all kinds of military music that stirred the heart and lifted the spirits, by the shouts of so many commanders and the bellowing of their adjutants and by the howling and shrieking from so many thousand wretched, crushed, half-dead victims of the day. End quote. So there you have it. Fear, confusion, and uncertainty, then a sudden moment of frenzied violence and scenes of human suffering. I think that's a decent portrait of an 18th century battle. To close out Ulrich Breaker's story, he hung back from the action for the rest of the battle, then, taking advantage of the chaos, snuck off and ran to Austrian lines. Ironically, he ended up in the custody of a Pondor regiment, but they treated him pretty well, and after a few days of debriefing, sent him on his way back to Switzerland. He was never caught. The Battle of Lebositz was Ulrich Breker's last day as a soldier of Frederick the Great. So that's a rough sketch of the armies of pre-revolutionary Europe. That was the status quo that was about to be shattered when the revolutionary French Republic built a new kind of army, commanded by a new breed of officers. By the time you're listening to this, topic suggestions for the bonus episode will be closed. Sorry if you had an idea and missed the cutoff, but there will be chances for you guys to get involved in the future. We got about 50 suggestions, and honestly they're all pretty good. I'll post them up online in the next day or two, and we'll do a poll to decide which will be covered. Next time, we'll be talking about the French Revolution. Yes, I'm going to try to cover arguably the most important event in human history in a single episode. We'll see how that goes. That's it for now. Thanks for listening.